The topic that I'm going to be speaking about is going to be the relationship between Birchas HaTorah, the bracha that we recite in the morning before we learn Torah, and Shvuz and Kabbalah HaTorah. What's the connection between Birchas HaTorah and Kabbalah HaTorah? In a way, it's a little bit ironical because um, Shavuos becomes the only day in the year that most people don't say Birchas HaTorah. If you're up all night learning, so it comes the following morning, you don't even recite Birchas HaTorah, and you're busy listening to somebody else doing it. So it's a little bit strange. But there's, there's an interesting relationship, I feel, between this Broch, Birchas HaTorah, and Shavuos and Kabbalah HaTorah. In fact, we can't really minimize the importance of Birch You're all probably thinking, so what's you know the big deal of Birch It's another bracha. I mean, especially in the morning in Shul, there's a whole host of brachas that everybody recites, you know. From Asher Kiddushan and Sasavalatiyasyadaim to Asher Yotzar, Birch the other brachas, you're just saying one bracha after another bracha after another bracha after another bracha. In the morning, you're saying a whole host of brachas. Before you even get to Baruch Shammah, you're already saying a lot of brachas. So how is this different than any other bracha? So that's what I'd like to emphasize. I'd like to emphasize the difference between the bracha that you recite with Birchas HaTorah and all other brachas. In fact, let's start off by showing two distinct and major, major distinctions between this bracha and any other bracha. Firstly, on the top right, the Gemara in the Dorm of Pe'alaf. The Gemara over there had previously spoken about why it is that there are many Talmidei Chachomim that don't seem to produce offspring that are on the right derech, if you will. Nowadays, unfortunately, we see the tragedy very often of children from very good homes that don't seem to be following the tradition of the parents. The father could be a great Talmud Chachom, a Rav or a Shiva and the kids. Says the Gemara, one of the reasons, amongst many, and I'm not really going to go back onto this particular topic, I'm just doing it because of the fact that the Gemara mentions it. Ravina Omer Ravina says it's a punishment, that they don't recite a bracha on Torah before they learn. So the Gemara has said that the reason why Talmidei Chachomim are kind of punished is because they were lax, if you will, in not making Birchas HaTorah Tchila. The word Tchila over here means the first bracha, the bracha that you recite before you learn Torah. In other words, you get an aliyah to the Sefer Torah, there's a bracha before the, uh, the, the Kriya, and then there's a bracha afterwards. So the bracha that you recite before you learn is the Bracha Tchila, the bracha that you recite before you learn Torah. In fact, the idea of the Aliyah is essentially based on this principle. The Aliyah is you go up to the Torah, and even if you had recited a Birchas HaTorah earlier in the morning, but it was instituted that whenever there's public reading, you should recite a Bracha on the Torah. And in effect, that's what we're going to be talking about, the great importance and the significance of what does it mean when you recite a bracha 
before before the learning or before you learn Torah. Essentially, it's going on on learning Torah, but for that matter, it's the same idea as the bracha that you recite before you learn. So the Gemara takes it now to a much higher level. The Amar of Yudamar Rav, my dechsev, the pasuk says, "Mi ho ishachacham." Pasuk in the Navi says, "Who is the wise person?" The Yovnes doesn't understand this. Dovor the following matter was asked. Nishal lechachomim was asked to the prophets, to the rather to the sages, will in the Vim as well as to the prophets, and nobody knew the answer. Velo pirshu, and nobody knew the answer. Pirshu akodesh baruchu meyatzma, until Hashem Himself answered. Hashem had to answer this question. Nobody knew the answer. What was the question? The question was Alma of the Horus. What was the sin that resulted in the destruction of the of the Beis Hamikdash, the first Beis Hamikdash we're talking about, and the exile of the Jews from the land of Israel? What is it that was worthy of such a terrible punishment? What sin? Was on such a high level or low level, if you will, that should that should deserve this kind of punishment. Alma of the Oretz was the question: Why was the land destroyed? Why was the land laid waste? And nobody knew the answer. In other words, apparently, the question was a good question. The Chachamim didn't really have an answer to it. The prophets didn't have an answer to it. And Hashem himself had to tell the people something which they otherwise would not have known, not from sages, not from prophets. And what did Hashem say? Vayomer Hashem, and Hashem had to answer, Al Ozvam es Tarasi. I mean, because the Pasik itself indicates this dialogue. The Pasik says, Al Ma of what was the land destroyed? And rather than the Novi giving the answer, he says, And Hashem said for, for the following reason. As if to say, there was a question that was discussed and asked amongst many, and no one seemed to have the answer until Hashem said, okay, now I'll tell you the answer. None of you seem to know the answer, I'll tell you the answer. The answer is because they forsook the Torah. They forsook my Torah. I mean, that's the answer. It's kind of anticlimactic because that should be something that everybody should have known. I mean, that's the reason why 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 Beis Amikdash was destroyed that the Jews were exiled because they breached the covenant and they violated the Torah. That's, that's pretty simple. That's pretty clear. So therefore the Gemara gives the following peculiar interpretation of this. And Hainu Shalai Shalom B'Kaili, etc. Amr Rabbi Rav She'ein Mavarchen B'Tarot They didn't make the bracha. That's why the land was destroyed. In other words, they no one, no one understood this reason. Everybody understood all other violations. But Oswam as Tarasi apparently something different than the rest of the Pasik. The Pasik continues, Lo Shamukoli, But what is Oswu as Tarasi different than not listening to the voice of Hashem and not going in the ways of the Torah? Oswam as Tarasi says the Gemara is Hashem says Shlobirhu Batarathila that they didn't recite the Birchas HaTorah before they learned Torah. Of course, this answer seems to raise more questions. I mean, this is the reason to destroy the land of Israel. 
So we know that Birch Torah is obviously very important. But is it that important that the land of Israel was laid waste and the temple was destroyed and Hashem uses the uh, harsh term and no one understood this. This is called forsaking my Torah because they didn't make a bracha before they learned Torah. This is... What's Pshat? So first let's take a look at the Ran immediately to the left of this Gemara. Well, there does seem to be some correspondence, as you're pointing out, between the non-compliance with Shemitah and the destruction of the land. Actually, there are different aspects to the destruction that may have had different factors causing it. You know, exile of the land, the land being laid waste, destruction of the temple. And we do find in the sources, uh, lack of tochacha, some of these things have to be viewed as either factors that were also part of it, or things that maybe aggravated certain things, or precipitated things, or the length of the exile, which in this case corresponded to the years of the Shemitah, which they didn't keep as well. So that was another aspect to it. So there are aggravating factors as well. And then there's also cause and effect factors. For example, the lack of tochacha is not necessarily always viewed as a as the cause. It's a cause that precipitated other things. If you'd have tochacha, other things wouldn't happen. If that if that youth wouldn't have killed the um, archduke of, of uh, Sarajevo. So there wouldn't have been World War One, but it's hard to really attribute the entire World War One as resulting from one assassination. There was a complex web of factors involved. Each one of them can be viewed as a cause of World War One, including ultimately the assassination of the Archduke of of Sarajevo. If that wouldn't have happened, maybe there wouldn't have been a World War One. That's true. Teaching you a lesson. And there's a lesson to be learned from that. But it, it's a little bit oversimplifying by merely saying that had there not have been an assassination, that's the only cause of World War I. Clearly it's not the only cause of World War I. So it's the same thing. If, there w- if they would have said Berchasatara, there may not have been a destruction because of, again, we have to understand what this concept means. So that's what we're going to try to explain a little bit. Likewise, if they would have observed the Shemitah, in fact, based on what we'll learn today, hopefully, we'll understand better maybe even that relationship, the relationship between Shemitah and Berchus as we'll see. Now, to understand this Gemara, the Ran brings down from Rabbeinu Yoyna. He brings down the following, and it partially enlightens us, but it doesn't exactly answer our question as to why this is such a serious offense. The Megillah storm of Rabbeinu Yoyne brings down from the from the fact that they're medayik, I'm going to try doing this quickly, that the land was destroyed for the lack of birchas Torah before learning the 
The fact that the sages and the prophets didn't understand it means that they must have learned Torah. Because had they not have learned Torah, if you take the Pasuk at a simple level, that they completely abandoned the Torah, then it wouldn't have been a difficult thing for the sages and the prophets to come up with the answer. The fact that they didn't have the answer means that this wasn't readily apparent. Therefore, says Rebbeinu Yaina, what the Gemara is saying is, they did learn Torah. And therefore, Therefore, they didn't have the answer as to why the land was laid bare. Only Hashem that knew, He understands, He understands the depths of a person's heart and motivation. That they didn't make the brach, meaning kloimar. That the Torah was not valuable enough in their eyes. The Torah itself was cheap in their eyes and not worthy of a blessing. And says Rabbi what that means is that they were not learning Torah. As a result, they they denigrated the making of a bracha for it. That's what it means. They didn't go in its path. They didn't learn Torah with the right kavana, and they didn't learn it with lishma. These are the words of Rebbeinu Yain says the Ram. What is the Rebbeinu Yain saying on his on a simple level? They learned Torah, yes, but the lack of a bracha shows that they denigrated the Torah as well as its bracha, and it was cheap in their eyes, not worthy of a bracha. In other words, they didn't learn Torah with the proper intent and with the right kavana. They didn't learn Torah with Shabbat. On the one hand, it sort of gives us a little bit of an understanding, but it raises more questions than answers. What does that mean? Because they, they learned Torah. But they didn't learn Torah with the right lishma, with the right kavana, with the right intent. Therefore, the Beis is destroyed, their exile and everything is destroyed because they didn't learn lishma. I mean, we all say, we talk shalom lishma, ba lishma. I mean, in fact, it said regarding learning of Torah, it says, la'olam yasek ba'adam b'tarah mitzvah is shalom lishma. It's okay and it's worthy and worthwhile for a person to do mitzvahs and even learn Torah. It says, la'olam yasek ba'adam b'tarah it's okay and it's an appropriate thing for people to learn Torah Shalom Lishma. Should we talk Shalom Lishma, Lishma? Eventually you'll come to Lishma. If you start off learning Torah Shalom Lishma, you'll eventually come to a level of Lishma. The idea of learning Torah Shalom Lishma is something which is deemed appropriate and it's considered a mitzvah, not the same mitzvah as Lishma. But it's okay to learn Torah Shalolishma, and it's actually encouraged because if you learn Shalolishma, you will eventually learn Lishma. So we have to understand what does Rabbi Yaina mean that it was destroyed because they learned Shalolishma. Shalolishma wasn't bad. And even though the way he seems to refer to maybe a different kind of a Shalolishma, which is something like which maybe that you're talking about, Eddie, that they were learning it in a cheaper way, if you will, and it denigrates it. But then one has to still understand why is that 
worthy of such a harsh punishment where the land of Israel is destroyed. Merely because they don't learn Torah the proper way, is that a reason to destroy? Not that the lack of learning, but learning it improperly, is that a reason to destroy the land? But it gives us a little bit more insight. In other words, it's not merely what Rebbe Yain is saying, and that's the insight that we do have, at least at this point, is that it wasn't just the lack of bracha that leads to the destruction. The lack of bracha is symptomatic and indicative of something else. And it's that thing that's indicative of, and that's why the land was destroyed. But now we have to understand that. But that's what Rebbe says. So the first level of understanding is to understand that it's not the mere lack of bracha. They negated the bracha. They didn't fulfill a bracha. It's a mitzvah say. It's a, it's, a, it's a positive command. They didn't make a bracha. That's not a reason to destroy Eretz Yisrael. But it was indic- indicative of something else. It's a symptom. It's something else that's wrong by the fact they didn't make a bracha. We have to get to the heart of what that is. But before we do that, let's talk about Birch's Torah a little bit as well. If you look, uh, let's first take a look at the left, right in the middle, the piece from the Or HaShulchan. Or HaShulchan <laughs> says, Birch's it's in Sivnam Zayn, Birch's Ma'oid how great and valuable is Birchas HaTorah Chazal Omer bin Adarim this Gemar Pnei Shem they opened Zechor Eretz Yisrael the land of Israel was destroyed on account of this lack of bracha the Bizeh Hoyru because they showed they demonstrated this way by this Shein Kedush HaTorah Chavivu Eslam again this is more of an elaboration of what Rabbeinu Yoni says by not making a bracha it shows that they didn't appreciate the sanctity of the Torah and that the Kedusha Satara was not precious in their eyes. The Limdua, is what Eddie just said, Rak Shari Chochmas. They learned it, but they learned it the way they would other things as well. And that's really the meaning of it. It's the most precious utensil of Hashem, and you're cheapening it. That's why this rabbi in LA. Yeah, we're going to follow Torah tradition, and we'll even learn Torah. And I said the other day, that's I said Wednesday night, the majority of the JTS supports it. Either they believe what this rabbi said, that the Torah, that the Exodus never happened, and that the whole thing is a myth. Doesn't mean that they don't learn Torah. They learn Torah. But they, uh, it's mythologized to them, and, and they're in effect saying that, listen, of course we should learn Torah, and Torah is our religion. The bottom line is, it's not the word of God. It's this. It's that. It's it's, it's all myth. It never really happened. They're really learning Torah to make themselves look good. Well, I no 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 no. Well, well, you see, I I don't want to go there. No no, I don't want to go there. As to what's motivating, everybody's always worried about what the other guys think. Oh, what are they thinking? I don't care what they're thinking. It's irrelevant what they're thinking. I don't care if they're doing it for personal reasons. If they're doing it for an intellectual exercise, they cheapen Torah. They cheapen Torah. That's exactly what this means. That you're learning Torah now, not Shalol Shema, there's Shalol Shema, there's Shalol Shema. There's different kinds of Shalol Shema. There's the Shalol Shema that most of us learn Torah with. Then there is the very clear cheapening of Torah. I mean, if you're calling it a myth and it never happened, there's no greater cheapening of it. I don't care if you learn Torah nonstop 18 hours a day. And I don't care why. It doesn't matter to me. 
And if you're observing it, we're good. He told everybody, go home and keep Seder. He kept the Seder. It's a nice quaint tradition. It's taking the word of God and demeaning it. It's Devar Hashem Bozo. You can't get a greater desecration. You forsook my Torah. The word of God, you have defamed, demeaned, denigrated, cheapened, and made fun of. I mean, there is no greater Chil Hashem and desecration. We take God's word and you desecrate it. And you're learning it. But you're learning it like, like you're learning Greek mythology. I mean, the Iliad, the, the Odyssey by Homer is also studied today. And it's viewed as great literature. And that's the way you're viewing the Torah. That's Dvar Hashem Bozo, that's cheapening it. You don't need anything greater than that. So he says over here, says the Orach HaShulchan, you're showing Shein Kedushas HaTayr Chavivo Etzlam. That the holiness and the sanctity, the sacredness of Torah, the Kedusha, is not dear to you, it's not precious. And Vlamdua Rakishare Chochmas. You're learning it like other Chochmas. In fact, with the movement, which I explained Wednesday night, the conservative movement was an, outgrow- was an outgrowth of what was called then historical Judaism, or Chochmas Yisrael, which was... In English, they refer to it as the science of Judaism. The whole JTS is based on the concept of Chochmas Yisrael, the wisdom of Israel, or they call science, the science of Judaism, or in its original German, Wissenschaft das Judentum. The Wissenschaft, it's Wissenschaft, it's a science. It's Wissenschaft das Judentum. It's the science of Judaism, Chochmas Yisrael. In other words, it's a Chochma like other Chochmas. That's cheapening the word of Hashem. And what is the Torah? It is the precious vessel by which Hashem created the world. This was Hashem's source of joy and nachas before there was even the heaven and earth created. We, the Jewish people, have nothing more precious we have nothing more precious than the Torah. It's brought down in the swarm that the Torah is considered to be the names of Hashem. So you're making fun of God's name. It's the shameless of HaKadosh Baruch When you demean Torah, you're demeaning God's name. This is how we achieve eternal life. We consider it to be the source of why the world was created. As the Pasuk says, If not for my covenant, study day and night, I would never, I would never have made the laws by which heaven and earth were formed. Therefore, we have to be very, very careful and thereby the Hashivas of Torah. The truth is, if you look around the world today, you see this in many guises. The idea of, of Yeshiva Bacham draft in Israel, although there are some issues there that do require attention and there are some valid complaints there. I'm not knocking the whole issue. But a lot of it, 
is motivated by a denigration of the value of Torah study for the integrity of the Jewish people and for its survival. If one views that this is what what the what the reason the Torah of, of the Jewish people are, that's what we're about. We're about we're about Torah. That's what we're here for. And this is what keeps the Jewish people going. And if you understand in Loy if not for the covenant of Torah, there'll be no heaven and earth. If you learn the Gemara and Shabbos, which we've looked at many times, about Hashem made a condition with creation. The sixth, Shuz comes out of the sixth. So Hashem said in Yom Hashishi that if not for that, Yom Hashishi, the sixth of seven when the Torah is given, then the whole six days of creation isn't worth it. If the Jews don't accept the Torah on the sixth of seven, there's no point to the six days of creation. So a lot of these issues are from a denigration of this point of view. But if one appreciates that this is the klichemd of Hashem, that this is His holy thing, then all of this cheapening, I mean, it's kind of ironic as well. Hashem says, I would have made heaven and earth if not for the bris. So the word bris in Chazal is used sometimes alternatively for the bris of Torah or for the brismila. And now the movement is there to nullify and to abolish the brismila. And you gave me that article, Bloodless Bris, where I don't have to prove the Jewishness of my child by doing a bris. It's, he's, he's perfect anyway. Who are you to say what the bris with Hashem is? It's part of the same denigration of the words of the Torah, the brismila, the bris of the Torah. It's the attitude of people like this Rabbi Wolpe, who goes around saying that, yeah, keep the traditions, but so what? It's, it's not real. Obviously, you become the final arbiter. That's, that's the meaning of the Torah. That's the worst. It's probably worse than not learning Torah. Those that don't learn Torah and know nothing about it are just merely ignorant. But those that are learning, and they know about priests, and they know about Torah, and they know about a Seder, and they know about mitzvahs, and that, but they cheapen the entire the entire thing, uh, Torah. So everything's now happening. And Judaism becomes totally meaningless. You've denigrated Judaism and Torah to the point of where it's a chil Hashem, Devar Hashem, Bosa. You're mocking Hashem himself. Yeah, it's the word of God. It's divinely inspired. It's all baloney. Because, it's, because you're saying it's a myth. So what was the great divine inspiration? I mean, he'll still say that. Again, that's why you, you asked that rabbi... You said earlier, what does he believe? So he said, it, it's all phony. It's a facade. Yeah, of course we believe it. You ask him, is Torah Messiah? Well, it's divinely inspired. What was divinely inspired? Was there an exodus or wasn't there an exodus? Were the Jewish people in Harsin? I mean, there was no exodus. And the Jews arose indigenously in Canaan. And clearly they never stood at Sinai in the wilderness. Clearly there weren't 600,000 Jews standing on Sinai, right? That's, that's pretty clear. That means that there was no divine revelation at Sinai. It couldn't have happened. Right? There's no exodus. And the Jews didn't wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And they arose, and there was no conquest of the land by Joshua. And the Jews were basically a Canaanite sub cult that developed monotheism and they developed the Torah. And clearly, there was never revelation at Sinai. Now, go ask the same conservative rabbi was there a revelation at Sinai? And he's going to say, well, there wasn't a physical thing that really happened at Sinai with Jews and God. But the Torah was divinely inspired. What's the divine inspiration in the Torah? 
to fully it up, to say that there was a Sinai? Well, I don't see anything divine about that. I mean, people to make up stories is not a big deal. Aesop made fables as well. Grimm's made uh, fairy tales. And uh, the writers of the Torah developed their own myth. I mean, it's not going to be any better than what Homer did with the Iliad and the Odyssey. So what's divinely inspired about it? It's a divinely inspired myth. It's a fraud. It's a phony. What's divine about it? So they're lying to you. When they say, yes, the Torah is divinely inspired, they have to be lying because if you ask them, and so what part is the divine inspiration? Basically, the part that you choose. The part about no homosexual relations, that's already, our modern sensibilities don't work with that. Ooh, love your neighbor, that's divinely inspired. If you ask him, ask him straight up, what exactly is divinely inspired about the Torah? Well, it has very lofty things. Love the stranger, that's always love. Tikkun olam. Um, love your stranger, love your neighbor, uh, charity. So what's divinely inspired is the part that you like. And what about the rest? That's not divinely inspired, that's all a fable. So comes out that you're God. That's really the fact that you're saying. Whatever appeals to you, you're calling divinely inspired by them. And whatever doesn't appeal to you is part of the fable. So what part is divinely inspired? Basically whatever you say so. So the rabbi has usurped, this rabbi, Rabbi Wolfie, has usurped the role of God for himself. Because he's now able to tell the people that's fable, that's fraud, that's fairy tale, that's ancient, that's archaic. Rabbi Ismar Sorsh, the head of the conservative seminary, the JTS, said that the whole temple thing with the sacrificial cult, it doesn't appeal to our modern sensibilities. So Leviticus is out, except for the part that I like where it says, love your neighbor as yourself, that part of Leviticus I like. The, the homosexual part I don't like, so that's out. And this is cultistic, and this is fable. So what then is divinely inspired? Only what I, Ismar Sorsh, tells you is divinely inspired. That's basically what it comes down to. Because he's going to tell you exactly what's not divinely inspired or whatever he doesn't appeal to. Whatever appeals to him now becomes called divinely inspired. So he's usurped the role of God and he tells you this is divinely inspired. I mean, what's going to be our roadmap and our yardstick to determine which parts are divinely inspired? Not in the same book of Leviticus. We have to discard about 90%. We have to discard 90% about this and about that. But we're going to, and Shemitah and everything, we'll discard all. We'll keep this passage, that's Leviticus. We'll keep the parts about don't send your kids to Moloch, and don't do any of that. We'll keep the parts about Kedoshim to you, because it sounds good and lofty. But we'll discard the rest. So, so who knows which part is the part to keep? So it's going to be the rabbis of the JTS. They're going to be the ones telling you which to keep and which to discard. So that means not only the chutzpah of denigrating the Torah, but they're usurping God's role because they're telling you it's divinely inspired. But they're going to tell you which parts are divinely inspired. And how do they know which parts are divinely inspired? What's their proof? We have these have a Shulchan we have a Nisara, we have a tradition, we have a Gemara. What exactly do they have that tells them which parts to take and not? Absolutely nothing. They turn it on their own. They turn it on their own. It's all arbitrary. They are the, the final arbiters of right and the wrong. And not only that, but they have the chutzpah to say this is God's command. They're no longer even telling you, listen, we don't have anything. Let's start religion from whole cloth. Judaism is nothing. There's nothing there. There is no Torah. Let's start off a religion. And I'd like you guys to accept me 
as being the one to know the moral code of what's right or wrong. Do you vote me in? I mean, do you think it's a good idea that I should be the one? They're not even doing that. They have a greater chutzpah. Their chutzpah is, this is part of our tradition, was part of our tradition. They don't have a shulchan But they don't follow shulchan What I tell you is tradition. That's what they're saying is what I tell you is what God is. They're like the false prophets of old. They're, you know, think about it. There's no difference between the modern conservative rabbi and the prophets of the Baal. You know, Eliyadavi took 350 prophets of the Baal and he slaughtered them. They killed them out. They killed out 350 prophets of the Baal. But what are the false prophets? They speak in the name of God and they tell you God says this and God never spoke to them. And I, I mean, I'm forced to this conclusion that a modern conservative rabbi is like the ancient prophet of Baal because he's not even being honest to tell you that God never said anything. I am saying what I'm saying and I'd like you to follow me because I think I know the right answer and I'd like you to follow me, which, you know, there's a certain honesty if you say that. If you say Exodus is myth, Revelation at Sinai is myth, the Torah is myth, but I do like certain parts and I think you should follow these parts and, you know, I hope you guys concur. And people say, yes, we concur. I mean, it's not Judaism. But at least whatever it is, is their religion that they're inventing out of whole cloth. And they're placing themselves on top. And they're asking, but they're honest. But they're not even honest. They're telling you by saying divine inspiration and then discarding whatever they want. They're saying that whatever is left that they hold of, that's divinely inspired. So they're telling you, don't keep it because I tell you. Keep it because God told you this. And they're always speaking in the name of God. God said we have a mission of Tikkun Olam. Judaism says we got to go rebuild the black churches down south. That's Tikkun Olam. That's what God said to us. Where did God say it? Who did God say it? He said it according to your understanding. So you're blaming everything that you would like to happen. You're blaming it on God. That's usurping God, speaking in the name of God. That's like the false prophets of the Baal. So modern conservative rabbi, and I dare say some, you know, I don't, I don't want to go beyond that. But are basically false prophets. Because they're telling you things as being divinely inspired when they themselves are willing to discard everything else. And they're placing themselves as the arbiters of what's divine inspiration. But let's go back now to Birchas Torah after that. I'm only saying this in, in light of some of the current events. We'll get back to some of these points again. But Let's go back to Birchas HaTorah itself, though. Because we're now understanding a little bit that Birchas HaTorah is indicative of an attitude. But let's see more strongly how Birchas HaTorah links to this idea as well. But you could certainly appreciate now that the land of Israel would be destroyed if Jews denigrate Torah to such a degree. Because not only are you not learning Torah, you're learning Torah, and there's a lot of scholarship in Torah learning. But you've missed the boat, and you've cheapened the word of God and desecrated it. And, and in a sense, you're lost. You're lost much more so than mere abandonment of the Torah. Because you're keeping the Torah, but, but look what you're doing. Uh, tomorrow becomes the bris meal. I don't need a bris in order. Everything, you're arbitrarily adding, you're arbitrarily detracting, and where you wind up with is total negation of God's word but a substitution a substitution for God's word with your word our attitude is the opposite 
It's God's word that was revelation at Sinai. He tells us guidelines. And Hashem says, It's so important, it's so chashim, that if not for the bris day and night, and here in this case, both bris, the bris mila as well as the bris of Torah, there's no purpose to heaven and earth. Gemara Brach is on the right again, the second piece of the Gemara. It says the following, and this is another Paladik Gemara in a sense. Amr of Yehuda, how do we know that the bracha of benching is the raisa? How do we know that birchas Torah before we learn is midaraisa? Exactly how we learn it out from this pasuk will shortly see. What the Gemara, though, is briefly saying is that from all the brachas that we have, that we recite, we recite hundreds of brachas every day, all those brachas, there are only two brachas that are commanded by the Torah, that are mitzvah, same mitzvah, commanded by the Torah. All other brachas are of rabbinic origin, as we all know. When you daven Shimon Esrei, that's mitzvah, although, according to the Rambam, tefillah is the raisa. But that would just be any kind of a request to Hashem. But a bracha, the idea of making a bracha, that is midrabbanon even by tefillah. Rambam shita is that tefillah is the raisa. Tefillah is basically any kind of exchange of dialogue, if you will, between you and God where you make requests of Him and you recognize Him and you make requests. That's what tefillah would be. But the brachas, the 18 brachas, the benedictions in Shmon Esrei, are drabbanon. All other brachas are drabbanon. Birchas mitzvahs are all drabbanon. When you make a bracha before you do a mitzvah, it's midrabbanon. Birchas are also drabbanon. When you make a bracha before you eat or anything else, it's also midrabbanon. Birchas shevach you come out of the bathroom and you make an asher yotzar, it's also midrabbanon. You make a bracha by the bris meal, it's also drabbanon. All brachas are drabbanon. All brachas are drabbanon. One second, I didn't say that. Let me get to it. All brachas are midrabbanon. That means that there's no Torah command anywhere to say beside a bracha. There's 613 minutes, it's not part of it. However, the Gemara says there are two brachas that are exceptions to the rule. And as we'll see shortly, they enter to the count of the, of the 613 mitzvahs that are derisive. One is birchas hamazon, the bracha that you make after you eat bread, certainly even from the other species, but after you finish eating, that's what the Pasuk says, is midaraisa. So when you bench, after you eat, you're fulfilling a mitzvah say, deraisa. It's a divine command, positive command, a divine positive command to make a bracha after you eat. Certainly by bread, possibly by the other ones as well. It's a question as to how far it would extend. Zonos, whatever, alamichia, is a deraisa. But certainly, Birkas HaMozam, the benching that we talk about, is midrash. It doesn't mean that the words themselves came out of the Torah. But the obligation to make a brach after you have eaten bread is midrash. In the Torah, it's one of the 613 mitzvahs. It's brought down by all those that count the mitzvahs. The Gemara also says that the brach that you recite before you learn Torah is also midrash. It's been arisen. It's learned out from the Pasuk, Yishem Hashem Ekra, Havu Godele Elokeinu. We'll see in a second how that Pasuk t- 
teaches us this particular mitzvah. But now already we start seeing a little bit that Birchus HaTorah is not so simple anymore. I mean, it's one of the two mitzvahs that are derived. In fact, it's the only uh, two brachas that's derived. It's the only brachas that you do before you do something that's midaraisa. Yes. The Gemara then wants to extend it and say, what about brachas before you eat and what about brachas after you learn? Could we derive one from the other? Could we say that just like Birchus HaMosin is after you eat? Likewise, after learning, you should also make a bracha. And same thing, just like Birch Satars, before you learn, before you eat, there should also be a bracha. The Gemara, but by the end, concludes that no, the only derises, that the only derises are going to be these two brachas. There's something yeah. At this point already, you get a little bit of an inkling of how great Birch Satar is. I mean, it's the only bracha other than Birch Hamazon that's Midaraisa. The Torah actually commands and it's a mitzvah. In fact, it's the only bracha that you do before you do something that's obligatory midaraisa. Birchas Hamazan is after. Birchas Tar is before. The Gemara actually wants to derive one from the other as well. We have to see, and that's one of the things I'd like to see, as to why is it that Birchas HaTorah, the mitzvah, is before you learn to do the bracha. The bracha that you do after learning is not midaraisa. Whereas in the case of Birchus Hamazon, it's just the opposite. The bracha that you do after you eat, that's the rice. The bracha that you do before you eat is not. And when you say Hamoti Lechem in the arts, that's not bitter rice. But when you bench afterwards, that is bitter rice. How come it's like that? Why is it after you eat bread, it's a mitzvah the rice at the bench? The bracha Hamoti Lechem in the that you do before you eat is not bitter rice. By learning Torah, the bracha that you make before, the bracha that you make in appreciation after you learn is not bitterizing. But besides that, all other brachas are, are not bitterizing. So again, we see the great chashivas of Birchas HaTorah, and therefore negating that, negating that is, was considered a serious infraction, although we haven't yet fully explained why that it is so. Let's now in actuality, Birchas HaTorah is a question in the Gemara as to how many brachas you make and which brachas you make. We make that whole series of brachas before, which the Rishonim have two opinions on. Depends if there's a Vav in the Vahar of Nod, you view it as one bracha, uh, with Vahar with the first part, with the last part of the Vesara, or is it two brachas? And therefore, the question becomes, do you make a total of two brachas before you learn Torah, or do you make a total of three brachas? That's a question. The first bracha that we make, according to Ashkenazic custom, is Lasok with the Vesor. There's a different version as well. Azerbai Oswald was just here, and he explained to us what Lasok with the actually actually means. Let's just briefly review the three points that we made on Lasok with the so that we we see where we're holding. Lasok b'direi is an unusual expression because you're saying not only are you saying to Hashem, thank you for commanding us to learn Torah, to be lomay Torah, but lasok b'direi sarah. Lasok is firstly asic engagement of the person himself. I, mean, I always say it, and I'll just repeat it again, I've said it very often, you know, in we, we refer to people to learning Torah. We call it learning Torah. In the Velt, when you go into the into the world at large, and someone asks a yeshiva, "What are you doing?" I'm learning. 
it makes no sense. In English, the English language, you say, I'm learning. You're learning what? Well, I'm learning Torah. I'm learning Torah. I mean, you go to a college guy, what are you doing? Uh, biology. Uh, what are you doing? Uh, learning. Learning. Oh, you mean you're studying biology. You know, you, you go to medical school, what, what are you studying? Uh, studying uh, medicine. But what does this learning come from? Probably it comes from the Yiddish, because in Yiddish we say learning. Learning Torah. So it becomes translated to the English as learning Torah. Learning Torah. But I always said a different shot on this. Why we refer to Torah as Torah learning rather than as Torah study. I mean, obviously, English would be correct to refer to it as Torah study. We study Torah, we study this, we study Rashi, we study Chumash. But you don't really, that's very cold. You don't talk about it like that. You learn Rashi, you learn Gemara, you're learning a Rabbi Kivega. You're not studying a Rabbi Kivega. The difference is, and that's what Rabbi Osman was really in effect talking about before, but I always say it with a slightly different spin. Let's say, let's take an example. When a child is crawling and begins to walk, so what does he do? He studies to walk or he learns to walk? Nobody ever studies to walk. Not an intellectual pursuit that you go to uh, preschool for to study the mechanics and the aerodynamics of what it means to put one foot in front of the other and shift your weight from the hind leg to the foreleg and uh, you don't study that. You learn to walk, riding a bicycle. You learn to ride a bicycle and you don't study to ride a bicycle. You don't study the laws of balance and, uh, and friction and wind and all of this kind of stuff, what to do when you make around the turn. It's, you learn. You learn to drive a car, although people go to classes about it, but you're learning to drive. So what's the difference? What's the difference in the meaning between saying you're studying something or you're learning something? The difference is, what do you want to say? I was going to say that one is, one is a continuous person, the other one eventually Well, I'm not sure about You're right partially about the continuous. One becomes part of you, which is why it's continuous. You learn to walk, you walk for your life. You learn to ride a bicycle, it's part of you, it's part of you for life. You learn to drive, you can become rusty at it, but it becomes part of you. When you study something, it's a detached and an objective disengagement, if you will, sometimes. You're engaging in it, but in a detached way. When you're learning something, you're totally engaged in it to the point that where it becomes part of you. For example, you go to medical school and you study medicine, but you learn to become a doctor. You're studying medicine to become a doctor, but the act of learning and imbibing the knowledge that makes you a doctor, that's called learning. You learn to become a doctor. You study medicine, but you learn to become a doctor. You learn to drive a car, you learn to walk. Learning is the engagement where it becomes part of you. It becomes part of you. Therefore, the truth is, and it sort of like ties into what we were saying before, the disattached study of Torah the science of Judaism, like other chokhmas, that's study, but it's not learning. What the Orach HaShulchan said earlier, the Lamdu Rakishare Chochmas, that they learned Torah like other chokhmas, that they studied Torah. They didn't learn Torah. They studied Torah. And Torah study became Torah study, not Torah learning. It became like studying literature like anything else, so you don't make a bracha. You don't make a bracha. It's this... This engaged and detached study of Torah, that's study. That's like Shah Chochmas. 
that becomes the science of Judaism, that becomes Chochmas Yisrael rather than Toiras Yisrael. Toiras Yisrael has to become part of you. And therefore, it's last week with the Vesor, it's to learn Torah. So in a sense, what I said earlier, that the difference between study and learn is that study is detached intellectual uh, studying and involvement, whereas Lasok, Asik, is an engaged and active learning where it becomes part of you. It's interesting that the two brachas that we find regarding what you're supposed to say when you see a great chacham, if it's a chacham in secular wisdom, you say, Asher Hashem has given of wisdom to man. Whereas the bracha that you make when you see a chacham the Torah, when you see a Torah scholar, is Asher Cholak who has apportioned of his wisdom to, to those that fear him. And this is also a similar concept to what we're saying right now. Chochmah is an intellectual pursuit that study that's detached from the person himself, and that's what studying is. Torah has to be a chalik. It has to be a chalik of the person, and it's ultimately a chalik of HaKadosh Baruch A person that studies Torah and doesn't engage in our learning of Torah, where he becomes attached to Hashem, is merely studying Chochmas Yisrael. Torah Yisrael is where you become a chalik of Torah, Torah becomes a chalik of you, and you become a chalik of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. You become a chalik of HaKadosh Baruch Hu through the Torah. Yisrael v'araisa v'kudisha b'richu chadu. That's the song, the popular song, the statement from the Zohar. Yisrael v'araisa v'kudisha b'richu chadu. They're all attached. Torah is attached to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Learning Torah makes Torah attached to you, and you become attached to the Torah, you thereby become attached to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Asher cholak With Torah, it's cholak, it's a chalik, it's a portion from Hashem Himself, and it's attached to Hashem Himself. Torah is attached to Hashem, Torah becomes attached to the person, the person becomes attached to the Torah, and he thereby becomes attached to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That's learning. It becomes part of you. Study is detached. Study is an intellectual pursuit, an intellectual exercise. That's what you do with other Chochmas. And therefore, as we said from the Orach HaShulchan and the Ran, the sin of the Jewish people were that they didn't make the bracha by being aware of this as being part of their very being that has to become part of the, the, every fiber of their being and has to become attached to them. They have to learn Torah, not just study Torah. So in one sense, when we say the bracha, that's what we're saying. We have a mitzvah, not just to study Torah, but to engage ourselves in it, to become attached to it. It's not just to be Torah. We don't just study it, we learn it. It becomes part of us. Rabbi Osman, however, said two other pshatim in what the meaning of Lasok B'Divay is. One, he said, based on Rashi in Psochim, Dafsam Chesam Beis, why on, on Shavuos there's a mitzvah to be lochem, to eat and to drink and to, and to be happy and to um, be enjoy physically, to show, says Rashi, 
that we were makabal the tire. In other words, he's saying that what Rashi's trying to teach us is that Torah is not something which we do reluctantly, that we do it as a responsibility, as great as it is, but rather that we enjoy it. Lasok Torah means we enjoy Torah. We're engaged in it. It's part of us and we enjoy it. It's not just a duty and a responsibility that we are forced to do, but rather we enjoy it. Therefore, you need Lochem in order to demonstrate our appreciation and our Gishmak in Torah. Lasak according to this, would mean Torah is Gishmak to us as well. That's one shot he said. So now we have two understandings of Lasak. The third one that he said is based on what, what Taisvis in Brochus, Tafiral from Beis, and Talmud Rabbi Ben Yain and other Rishonim say over there. And that's the following. The question, of course, is asked how come when a person learns Torah and then he interrupts his Torah study to go and work, and, and then later on in the day he comes back and he learns a second time or a third time or in the evening, why does the Brochus of the morning? still retain its validity. After all, we know that for any mitzvah, and certainly for birchas hanenin or for anything, if a person has an interruption, a significant interruption, he has to make the bracha again. So certainly when a person makes a bracha in the morning and he learns later on that evening, it's a very, very large disruption and a significant interruption. I have to say, why don't you have to make another bracha? says Tyson because the Chiv of Talmud Torah applies on the person constantly 24 hours a day. That's what Rebbein Yainis says also along those lines. And therefore we can explain the idea of Lasok Mitzvah two ways based on this. Number one, as Tyson says, it's not an interruption. You're actually engaged in Torah study all day. Because since the responsibility, the yoke of Torah is on the person all day, he never really interrupts his, his sense of responsibility to learn Torah. It's merely he's forced to do something else, but when he's finished, he goes back to his Torah learning. As a result, one can understand the words Lasok as implying, this is my ASIC. My ASIC is Torah. My ASIC is to be constantly immersed in Torah. The fact that I have interruptions and I have other needs and everything else, does not detract from my general sense of, res- of feeling totally immersed in Torah. Last week, the Torah then means we don't have just a mitzvah to learn Torah. We have a mitzvah to be immersed in Torah. That's last week, the Torah. The mitzvah is not merely to learn Torah. The mitzvah is to be totally immersed and submerged in it, that it should be a constant aspect of your life throughout the day, throughout your your whole sense of who and what you are, that it's always with Torah. So, so far we have three understandings of Lasok with the Beisara. That it's Lasok and not just detached study, but it's to be involved and engaged. Lasok that we should feel that it's part of us and that we enjoy that it's Gishmak. And Lasok that we are involved in it to such a degree that we're totally immersed and that's why we don't have to make another bracha. There is another aspect to this lasso, which is kind of the reverse of this third point which we made. And that is that not only is it that we are constantly immersed in Torah, that we want to go back to Torah study, but all of our lives, everything that we're doing 
is viewed through the spectacles of Torah. Shamshan Rafal Hirsch once referred to it that way, that Torah is a spectacle. It's, it's like glasses that you put on your face, that you see everything through it. If you have red glasses on that are tinged red, everything around you, it looks like it's red. Whatever you have on as spectacles, and you perceive the world through it, you're perceiving the world through those lenses. Torah is a lens. We put it over our eyes, and we perceive the world through it. Lasak Mutabesara then means that all of our asakim should be viewed through Torah. And therefore, when we're in business, we're engaged in business the way we understand the Torah wants us to be engaged in business. When we eat, when we drink, we eat and we drink from a Torah perspective. So therefore, Torah permeates our entire lives to a degree that all of our perspectives are never free from Torah. Therefore, you don't have to make a bracha later on in the day. You don't have to make a bracha when you, when you engage in Torah study again because all throughout the day, you are basically perceiving everything that you saw through the lens of Torah itself. And therefore, it's lasok with the that all of our asakim should be through the very Torah. I once heard a shot from, from Rav Gifter's on, on this idea. The, the Gemara teaches us that when a person goes up to Shemaim, the first question that they ask him is Kovato eating the Torah. You establish times for Torah study, which is usually understood to me that you establish times where fixed times where you'd study Torah. So he says, what does it mean Kovato eating the Torah in the plural? Eaten. Times. Why not just Kovato ace the Torah? Did you establish a fixed time for Torah study? Of course, it might be in the plural because as the Rambam teaches us in the first parak of Hilchas Talmud Torah that a person is obligated to set aside daily two times for Torah study, once by day and once by night. Therefore, Kavati Itin Torah would mean that you establish those two times for Torah study that you're obligated to because the mitzvah of Bogisa by Yom obligates us to engage in Torah study at least twice daily, once by day, once by night. So Kavata Eaton, that's why it's plural. But he explained it a little differently. He said that we find in Kohelas, where Shlomo Melech talks about life, he mentions the word ace 28 times. Ace Svod, ace Rekod, ace Mulchoma, ace Shalom. Ace Lismoach, a time for joy, a time for weeping, a time ace Livkos, a time to cry, a time to mourn, a time ace Lebes, ace Lomos, a time to be born, a time to die. And what he said with that is that with those 28 ace times for different things, Shlomo Melech covers the entire gamut of life's experiences. Kovato eating the Torah. That you establish, that you effectively make Torah your means of viewing life and making these decisions about when is it a time for war, I'll be Torah. When is it a time for peace, I'll be Torah. When is it a time to mourn or a time to rejoice? When do you make festivities and holidays? And when do you feel sad and mournful? Do you do that based on Torah perspectives? Do you do it through the lens of Torah, through the spectacle of Torah? Kovato itim la Torah. Did you establish the 28 Eaton of Kohelas that run the entire gamut of life through Torah lenses and through Torah spectacles? Is that the way you perceive life? Therefore, we don't have to make a bracha 
once we close the book and we go off to other aspects of life. Because if we view the lens of life, the, uh, rather if we view life through the lens of Torah, then we're always being Isaac Bidivesara, Lasak Bidivesara. Therefore, Asik, in this sense, means the perception of life through the lens of Torah. And all of our Asakim, all of our Lasak, should be Bidivre Torah through the Torah spectacle. We now have four Pshatim on Lasak Bidivesara. One more Pshatim will say, a fifth one. And that's also something based on what Rav Gifter said, a, a story that he once mentioned how when he came back, he said over by his Levi, by the Hesped, how when he came back from South America and he was collecting funds and he went to visit a very wealthy person and he could never find him at home, although he had this palatial mansion. So he goes to him in his office and he meets him there late at night and he asks him, he says, I don't understand why is it that you build such a beautiful, gorgeous home with swimming pools and all kinds of luxuries, but you're never there. You never live in it. So the man told him, he said, here's a Hamishiyid, he says, listen, I built the home for my wife and my children. You're right, I'm never there. And the reason is, if you want to be matzliach in the Geshefft, we broch ligin in Geshefft. If you want to be successful at any enterprise, at any business, you have to live in it be totally immersed in it. Sadrif Gifter, you taught me a gewaltig musr about how to approach Torah. If you want to be successful in a geshaft, if you want to be matzliach in a geshaft, in any enterprise, you have to live in it. You have to be submersed in it. You have to live in the geshaft. Torah shouldn't be worse than any other geshaft. It's an asik. Lasok putivay But the only way you're going to be successful is if you're totally engaged and submersed and submerged in it. You have to be totally immersed in Torah in order to be Masliach in Torah. Our mitzvah, therefore, is not just to learn Torah. Our mitzvah is to become 